Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Mark chapter 7, I want to ask you to find it, please, and to stand with me as we read God's Word together tonight. I want to read several verses out of Mark 7. And let's begin with verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders." And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. There are many other things, I think King James says, there are other traditions, which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Then in verse 13, Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight to distinguish between what is truth and what is a tradition of men. Lord, we all have our ideas, but your Spirit has the inside track in helping us to understand truth. And Father, I don't want to traffic tonight in tradition or in the trivial, but I want to walk tonight in truth. And so I ask you to help me to communicate truth. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would not be bound by our culture or our thought processes or our traditions or our perceptions, but that we would be locked into truth. And whatever has to be transformed and changed, eradicated or straightened up in our personal theology to get us to the point where we march to the truth of the Word, then I pray that you would help us to do that. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus opens a can of worms. I don't believe there was a Pharisee within gunshot range that wouldn't have given his last denarius to have Jesus strung up by sundown. 
They are furious with Him. They are angry with Him. They are hostile toward Him. Tradition is that thing that Jesus constantly confronted and opposed more than any other thing. The Pharisees and the scribes were the physical example of the tradition. And it seems that every time Jesus had a battle, He had it with Pharisees and scribes. And He had it with those who fought for tradition. You never see in Scripture Jesus having a battle with lost people or having a battle with sinners who are in need of hope and a Savior. He always had his battles with the religious establishment and the accepted norm of the day. So I conclude by that, nothing's changed. Gene Getz says, when we understand the freedom God has given the church, we are neither bound by traditions nor prone to ignore their value. Traditions are a part of life. Uh, you go to a college, a college had certain school colors. And you wear those colors to a ball game because that's a part of the tradition of the institution. You wear uh, whatever color it is that, that exemplifies the school to which you've identified. We sing the national anthem at ball games. Some people that sing it ought to be shot. But that's a tradition. It used to be when people had sound mind and reasoning hearts that it was a tradition to have a prayer at a ball game, but now God's not interested in sports and we're not interested in God, so we have taken that out. We have all kinds of traditions. Turkey for Thanksgiving. Unless you're my mother-in-law, and then she never fixes turkey for Thanksgiving because she doesn't like the tradition. We have all kinds of traditions. We have certain things that we do in our family that are traditional for us to do. You have things in your family that are traditional to do. There are things in the church that have become traditional. Dinner on the grounds, those kind of things. Those things that bring about a sense of ongoing and, and, and it's good. Sometimes they are superficial. Sometimes they're fun. The problem with tradition is when people develop forms and structures and then over time give those forms and structures a biblical status. When you and I begin to equate biblical status to our forms and structures, then we get in serious trouble because we violate Scripture. And we become guilty of what Jesus says five times in this opening part of Mark chapter 7. We become guilty of practicing and exalting the traditions of men above the commandments of Scripture. Then our traditions turn to stone. And then they harden us. And then they make us so locked in to a certain style or a certain way. And we need to remember that Means and methods are nothing more than tools to get to the master or to talk about the master. Tradition is a funny word. It, it, it creates a lot of different feelings in people. And there's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with form and structure. As long as they are held in their proper perspective.
We have a tradition in Southern Baptist churches about worship services at 11 o'clock. And Sunday school at 9.30, 9.45. Almost every Southern Baptist church, if you go in most towns, most of them have the same time structure. Nothing chiseled and granted about that. Nothing spiritual about that. You don't lose the anointing of God over changing the time of a service, but you would think you did in some places. Meeting times, meeting places, how you do things. Sunday school is a tradition. There's nothing wrong with the tradition of Sunday school unless you begin to make your class a God. Then it becomes a problem. All the things that we do, why we take an offering, the way we take an offering. In the Presbyterian tradition, you would take the offering at the back doors and have buckets in the back, but Baptists will steal it, so you've got to take it up in plates. The way we give an invitation. The whole invitation system started basically with Charles Finney, a revivalist and an evangelist. It's about 120 years old. It has not been the tradition of the church to have an invitation and walk the aisle. Some people are bothered if you don't do that. That's a tradition. There are times when we need to go home and think about it, and we don't need the release of unloading a few guilt feelings by walking an aisle. We need to go home and deal with God. It's a tradition, something that we have done. I got to studying uh, this week as I was preparing for this message about several traditions. Uh, the choir will be interested that there's a tradition about how choirs started wearing robes. You see, we've broken that tradition tonight, and no wonder we can't have revival in this church. <clears throat> Where did the idea of Sunday evening services come from? A lot of people don't come back, so they don't believe in the tradition. But where did the idea of Sunday evening services come from? Well, I started researching it. In 1792, coal oil lamps were invented. And people began, because of coal oil lamps to go out of their houses at night. Before 1792, 200 years ago, people would go home and they'd stay home and at dark they went to bed because they got up before daylight. But with coal oil lamps, people began to wander out away from their homes at night. And ministers catching on to the fact that people were going out anyway bought coal oil lamps and put them in the church and held Sunday evening services. Now, it is interesting to study it because the church opposed it. By and large, across all denominations, the established faithful church fought Sunday night worship services. They didn't think it was right. You know who came? The curious and the lost. Because they couldn't find anything else to do. So they showed up at church. And so in your grandparents' or great-grandparents' tradition, Sunday evening church used to be the evangelistic service. And it was the evangelistic service because more lost people and curious and seekers came on Sunday night than came on Sunday morning. The faithful crowd came on Sunday morning. You taught doctrine and scripture on Sunday morning. You appealed to the lost on Sunday night. And you see, we've reversed it in our culture. We haven't done anything unbiblical. We've just reversed it, and times have changed, and things have changed. I remember uh, when I was in uh, Ada, we uh, canceled. Well, no, we didn't cancel. I said I'd never use that word. We moved 
Sunday night worship to Monday night for four weeks. We didn't cancel it. We just moved it 24 hours. And oh, you would have thought, I, I can remember one person say, oh, this church has been here for 100 years and the lights have never been out on Sunday night. Well, you know, I could look into her eyes and tell the lights have been out with her a long time anyway. So, uh, But you know what we found? We found about a 30% increase in lost people coming on Monday nights because people would go to work and say, why don't you come to church and eat supper with me tonight? And then we've got a service after that. And our attendance went up almost three and 400 on those Monday nights. Why? Well, one, it was different. They wanted to know why the church was doing that. Two, it was an easy way to invite somebody to a church event. You invite somebody on Friday, they forget about it by Sunday. Or they sleep in. And so it was just something that was a little bit different. Jesus confronted the Pharisees about their traditions. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, if ever an individual exposed pride, Jesus did. His words bit into their ideas like harpoons into whale blubber. Like bloated beasts of the deep, the Pharisees floated to the surface for all to see. There was, first of all, the caustic accusations of the Pharisees. They were openly hostile toward Jesus. They were looking for an opening. They were looking for a way to attack Him. And because they couldn't find any way to attack Him, they began to attack His disciples. They were the guard dogs of tradition and of religion. Now, in verse 5, what He says is that they did not act properly. It is not say that they didn't wash their hands. What it says is they didn't wash their hands according to the traditions of the Pharisees. They didn't use the right kind of soap. They didn't do their hands the right way. They didn't let them dry the, white, the right way. And so because of that, they said, you're unclean. You didn't wash your hands properly. You didn't practice the Jewish ceremonial accepted washing of the hands, and so your hands are dirty. You can't eat that. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, look there if you would. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now verse 3. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with even so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Now, Jesus has already violated the tradition of the Sabbath, Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3. He has violated their issues that he sees as petty and as incidental. The Jews established their tradition because they said tradition was the fence of the law. I want to give you a great illustration. Sometimes we build fences where God doesn't want us to build them. I, I remember uh, this past week, or, week ago, 
uh, Bill Gothard came and spoke for two hours at uh, the Foreign Mission Board, which was an interesting experience, talking about what they're doing in Russia and other places. But there's a story about when he was taking John MacArthur around the Institute and showing him around. And he was showing him a particular place. He said, you see those geese over there? He said, yes. He said, those are wild geese. He said, if we didn't put them in a pen, they would fly off. MacArthur said, that's interesting. He said, do you know what that teaches us about God? He said, no. It teaches us that we need to establish laws because men are like wild geese. And if you don't build fences around them, they'll fly off. And MacArthur said, I just simply asked Bill a question. What would God have to say to us if He hadn't created wild geese? You see, we try to make something say something that don't say anything. I think God gave wild geese because He gave men gun to shoot them and eat them. And so they'd wake you up when they fly over your house, headed south. We build traditions and we build fences and we say, okay, so because we've got this, let's build a rule to protect it. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees said the tradition was the fence of the law. Charles Ryrie said legalism is a fleshly attitude which conforms to a code for the purpose of exalting self. There is nothing wrong with tradition unless it blocks the truth. When it blocks the truth, it is a hindrance rather than a help. When it blocks the truth, it is useless and hopeless. And the thing that you and I must do with traditions is the thing that Jesus did with them. When they block the truth, we must confront them. Notice what he says. Verse 4, other things. Verses 3 and 5, the tradition of the elders. Verse 8, the tradition of men. Verse 9, in order to keep your tradition. Verse 13, invalidating the Word of God by your tradition. Traditions externalize religion. They emphasize the external. It puts everything on an external basis. And you see, you can obey the law of God externally and still break it in your heart. You can never physically commit the act of adultery, but you can have adultery in your heart because you lust with your mind. You understand? It's what Jesus said. You don't ever have to pull a gun to murder anybody. You can hate someone in your heart enough that you would kill them if you could kill them. You see, you can obey it externally. You can take, mark all the boxes on the envelope and say, I'm keeping face, and yet break it in your heart. That is what Jesus was dealing with. And so there was a conflict arising between truth and tradition. They had two different views of holiness. The Pharisees had one view of holiness, and it was external. Jesus had another view of holiness, and it was internal. And the question and the wrestling that was going on between Jesus and the Pharisees is the same issue that every generation has to deal with. And that is, what is biblical faith? Not what is cultural faith, 
Not what is acceptable to us, but what is biblical faith. And the tendency of our human nature is to hold on to our man-made traditions and to exalt them above the Word of God. There was a caustic accusation by the Pharisees. I made a list this week of things we could have held on to. What if we had held on to going barefoot to school? What if we had held on having only one pair of shoes and that was the pair you wore on Sundays? I don't even think we'd get close to a majority vote on that one. We like our shoes. We like different kinds of shoes. Ladies have got to have flats and they've got to have heels. They've got to have dress and they've got to have casual. And you can't just have tennis shoes, you've got to have certain kinds of tennis shoes. I don't see anybody out holding signs up around our community. Let's get back to the basis of our society. Let's all go to school without shoes. Nobody's beating that drum. What if we went back to the good old days of no air conditioning? And no central heat. And the oldest getting up out of bed and going to get the wood and stirring the fire and getting it started so everybody else in the house could be warm when they got up. I don't see anybody beating that drum today. What if we went back to the days of kerosene lamps? No TV. What if we even went back to the days of no cable? Well, we'd be off the air right now which should probably be voted on by several people in this community. What if we went back to the days of the old swimming hole when you didn't have enough sense and you swam with water moccasins and didn't know it? Now everybody's got swimming pools in their backyards. What if we went back to the days of barn raisins? And you buy them from Sears now, and they'll come in and drop it right down on your lot. You don't need to raise a barn anymore. You just got to pay interest on it. What if we went back to the day of sunbonnets and BYPU? What if we went back to the days of baptizing in the creek and all night singing? We got folks now that after three songs are sitting there looking at their watch, and I don't know if they'd ever last through an all night singing. What if we went back to the days of camp meeting? Now, there wouldn't be some bad ideas about that, but Richard, what if we went back to pump organs? That'd be a little tough, wouldn't it? Funeral fans. Oh, I just wish it was like it used to be. When we just sat and sweated and smelled and had those wonderful funeral fans. <laughs> Boy, those were the good old days, man. That's, that's when God's Spirit was moving. I don't see anybody fighting for those things. What if we went back to canned foods for orphanages? Now, because we give a different way, we give... Out of our church, we give over $10,000 a year to the Georgia Baptist Children's Home just for orphans and kids that can't get along and that are out of place and come from dysfunctional families. What if we went back to the days of missionary barrels where we used to get goods together and send them by ships? It would take months to get it over to the missionaries and they'd have to wait for supplies. Now they get their paycheck on a certain day just like you do. What if we went back to the day of outhouses? I don't see anybody excited about that. You see, all of those things 
had a purpose. But they are all out of date. I hadn't found anybody, and I've been driving around Albany now for almost three years, I haven't found one person building an outhouse on the back of their house yet. Why? You don't need them. We have a new invention called indoor plumbing, and everybody seems to like it. It served its purpose. And sometimes we get nostalgic and wish for the good old days, and let's be honest, the good old days weren't so hot sometimes. Boy, I heard some older amens out of that one. I... <laughs> we need to separate the difference between nostalgia and what's good for us right now. Our memories can trick us. None of those things that I talked about were bad. Not a one of them was bad. They're just now out of date. They have served their purpose. And the purpose of traditions can be for us to remember our heritage. But they are to never be where we submit ourselves to the past and say, this is the way it's got to be. Now let me tell you where we get in the biggest danger with traditions. Is most of our traditions personally are just that. They're personal. They don't have anything to do with spirituality. They have to do with the fact that we're all different. Those of you who were raised in the country have a different way of doing things than those who were raised in the city. Those of you that were raised in a certain kind of environment were, are different from those that were raised in other areas. It doesn't mean that anybody's weird. It doesn't mean that anybody's strange or off base. It just means we're different. There are some folks in our church that would like it if every Sunday we started the service with a doxology because they think that's the only way to worship. There are some people that would like it if we didn't ever sing. They, th they came from a background where all you had was Bible teaching and all you did was teach doctrine. There are some people that want to do all choruses. There are some people that want to do all hymns. And it's just their tradition, their feelings, their opinions. None of them is completely 100% right. We're different. I was raised in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And I'm moving into the... Boy, I'm getting old. Uh... And you know, what I like in music is different from my parents. I remember in 1963 when four guys from Liverpool came over and destroyed this country. <laughs> oh, to have that problem again compared to what we've got now. <laughs> but I remember my dad could not understand why I didn't want to listen. He could not. I mean, my mom and dad tried to push it on. They did everything they could. They would play it and the, they would buy tapes. They could not understand why I didn't want to listen to Jim Reeves and the Billy Vaughn Orchestra all the time as a teenager. And they just couldn't imagine. I can still close my eyes and stand in my dad's drugstore and I can hear him saying, Son, Nobody plays music like Monavani. And I want to say, but Dad, he's dead. 
Montevani's great music. In fact, I own some Montevani music, if it might surprise some of you. But you see, there were different things that affected me. Now, if I ever get to the point where my style is the only style, then I establish an unholy tradition. If you get to the point where your style is the only style, you have established an unholy tradition. There are some people that if we came in here and had Stamps Baxter and Squire Parsons and had the cathedrals every week, I mean, you'd be as happy as a dead pig in the sunshine. You'd just have a great time. But you know what? There are people who will stay away. There are some people that if we had guys like for him in here, they'd be just as happy as they could be. And some of you would stay away. You know what? Neither one of you is wrong. You hear me? Neither one of you is wrong. You're just different. And you are no more spiritual listening to gospel quartet music than the people who listen to groups like For Him, nor are the people who listen to groups like For Him any more spiritual than people who listen to gospel quartet music. They're just different. Does that make sense? You know what that means? It means you don't have to feel guilty if something doesn't appeal to you personally because it may appeal to somebody else. I love to hear this choir sing. There may be some of you out there that don't like to hear them sing. We'd like to share with you the plan of salvation right after this service. <laughs> I love to hear this choir sing. I don't care what style of music they sing, I like it. Because I like them. Because I know their heart. And some of them don't always like every style that they do, but they know they're going to get to a style they like. Am, am I getting through? Are you hearing me? You see, a tradition becomes wrong when you say it's the only way you can do it. A tradition is good if it helps to set a standard for you. It's wrong if it says the Bible standard doesn't matter. We're cemented to this style and to this kind. And what God's doing when He breaks up our traditions is He is stretching our rubber band out a little bit every time. Number two, and believe it or not, the last three points are a lot shorter, so you don't have to get worried. Number two, Christ's condemnation of the traditions. In verses 6 through 13, Jesus defends His disciples and exposes the hypocrisy. And here's what He says. Here's the equation. Right talk plus a wrong heart equals empty religion. Right talk plus a wrong heart equals empty religion. The Scripture says, in vain do they worship me. Now this is what absolutely blew them out of the saddle, is that Jesus would come and quote Isaiah and Moses. You know what He did, don't you? He quoted the law and the prophets. Drove them crazy. Because that's what they built their life on, was the law and the prophets. At least that's what they thought. But Jesus came and used what they thought they were building their life on, spoke it in truth and with authority and power. After all, He knew Moses and He knew Isaiah, and they were no Moses and they were no Isaiah. thought I'd steal that political line and use it while I could. <laughs> Jesus said they were hypocrites. You know, I've always, I have wondered, John, since you laughed. 
I wonder if Jesus ever looked at them and said, I know Moses, and you're no Moses. <laughs> Maybe he did. We'll ask Dan that this week when he's in town. Hypocrites in the original language means one who answered but did nothing. One who answered but did nothing. They were teaching their doctrines as God's Word. Verse 8, they were laying aside the Word of God. Verse 9, they were rejecting God's Word. And verse 13, they were robbing the Word of power, invalidating it. Now I want you to read, and they're in your notes, the two quotes from Jewish rabbis. He who expounds the Scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Do you see what he said? He said, if you say the Scripture says one thing and our tradition says something else, you will go to hell if you teach what Scripture says. The next quote is from the Mishnah, which is the Jewish tradition in the Talmud, and it says, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. Now, before we run roughshod over the Pharisees and say, man, these guys were way out of line, we need to ask ourselves the question, what do we elevate above truth? What bothers us? What hurts us? What offends us? A violation of truth or a violation of our tradition? A violation of the Word of God or a violation of our taste and our personal preferences? There was Christ's condemnation of the traditions. We cannot grant to traditions inerrant status. The Scripture does not say that God so loved the world that He sent a committee. It says that God so loved the world that He sent His Son. I read a letter this week, and uh, I think it was in the Tennessee State Paper, about how you pick people to come and preach at your church. This was hilarious. This was written by a pastor, and he said that the Baptist democratic way to pick preachers for a church is to open it up in a business meeting and take nominations from the floor for whoever anybody wants. And then you get together and you let the deacon board vote and they come up with the names of the top three. Then at the next business meeting, you bring the names of those top three, see if anybody's got any they want to add because they may have missed the last meeting. And then they vote and they ask the first one. And if the first one can do it, then it's God's will for him to come. If the first one can't do it, then you go to the second one. If the second one can't do it, then you go to the third one. If the third one can't do it, you go back to the church and ask them for more recommendations. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Let's just lay it out right here. What happens in this pulpit, I'm responsible to God for. And who stands behind this pulpit must preach the truth, not based on a popular vote, but based on what the needs of the church are. This pulpit is a sacred and holy desk, and it is never to be open for a vote. It is to be open for the revelation of God's will, for God's man to come and say God's message whether we like it or not. That's what the pulpit's for. Because I guarantee you, if we voted on it, a lot of people wouldn't vote for guys like Bill Stafford to come here. But sometimes we need a Bill Stafford. Some folks wouldn't vote for Layman Strauss, but he's coming. Some people wouldn't vote for Junior Hill, but he's going to be here in February of next year. I got news for you folks. Sometimes we don't know what we need. God knows what we need, and He needs to send people to tell us what we need to hear. The traditions can never be exalted above truth. 
The Word doesn't say the Constitution and bylaws have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Nor does it say the Baptist faith and message is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. There's nothing wrong with Baptist faith and message. It's a good document. But it's not inerrant. It's not holy. It's a tool. And we must keep it in that perspective. Number three, Christ's declaration of the truth. Christ's declaration of the truth. And he uses the illustration there of food and of sin. And he says, food ends up in the stomach, sin begins in the heart. Now what he's doing, and when he talks about food and what they eat, he is saying that the walls that separated the Jews and the Gentiles are being torn down. He's taking the old mosaic system of clean and unclean foods, and he's making that null and void. Someone has said that some minds are like fixed cement, thoroughly mixed and permanently set. Jesus said there is a difference between truth and tradition. Tradition is caught up in forms. Truth is caught up in faith. Tradition is bound in legalism. Truth is set free in liberty. Tradition replaces the Word, and truth exalts the Word. Number four, Christ's examination of men's heart. Verse 15, Things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. That is a revolutionary statement. For what Jesus says is, is that sin is an inside job. Now I want you to look at the sins that he lists and we'll go through them very quickly. The first six sins that he lists beginning in verse 21. The first six that he lists are successive acts of evil and they are all listed in the plural. The first one is evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. This means a deliberate reasoning to justify sin. A deliberate reasoning to justify sin. Then he uses the word fornication. That is every kind of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Thirdly, he uses the word thefts. It really is a word pilfering. Acts of pilfering. Dishonest acts. Then he uses the word murders, deliberate acts of killing. Then he says adulteries. This is promiscuous sexual vice outside of marriage. Coveting and wickedness. That is craving something that you want, but you can't have. Now, in the last ones, in the first ones, he is talking in the plural. Now he comes down to six singular nouns. The first have been acts of evil. These are moral evils. The Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus on these first six. But they would not have seen these others listed in the same category. And yet Jesus put them all together. The first one is deceit. That is to bait or to trap. It's a fishing term. It means to hook and to lure someone in by deception. Deceit. Entrapping others for a personal advantage. The second word he uses is sensuality. That is unblushing moral debauchery in the face and in the defiance of public opinion. This word means sensuality means there is no attempt to hide the sin. Just sin blatantly. Kind of describes America in 1992, doesn't it? No attempt to hide sin. Just living however they want to live. Then the third word he uses is envy. A grudging Jealous attitude, slander, injurious speech, railings against God or man, pride, 
appearing to be above someone or to show oneself above someone. It's a swollen opinion of oneself. Foolishness. That's folly. Someone who knows better but acts without ethics or responsibility. That is an interesting word, foolishness. Someone who knows better but acts without ethics or responsibility. Man is his own source of defilement. Jesus said, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. What he's saying is simply this. You can keep all the laws and you can do all the things and you can keep your traditions and you can keep washing your hands, but in the meantime, you are defiled on the inside. Now, two suggestions. If you tend to be a Pharisee, lighten up. Lighten up. Take it easy. Don't be so hard on other people. Remember that the same standard by which you judge others, you will be judged. Lighten up. Secondly, if a Pharisee is trying to control your life, stop them. Do what Jesus did. Confront it with the truth. If a Pharisee is trying to control your life, stop them. Don't let them nitpick you to death. Make a resolution that you're going to please God and you're going to please yourself. By pleasing God, you can do what you need to do. Have you ever seen a big oak tree that's wrapped in ivy? It is beautiful to see a huge oak tree that has the, that broad leaf. I don't know what kind of ivy it is. I'd have to ask somebody that's got a horticulture background, but... It's got that broadleaf ivy around it, dark green ivy, and it grows up and it intertwines around the trunk and it begins to go off on the limbs and it begins to hang down and it's beautiful. But at the same time, it's killing the tree because the vines are wrapping themselves around that giant tree and in essence, they are choking and draining the life out of that tree. That's what traditions can become. We can become giants in our faith, but if we don't watch it, traditions and things that we establish and set up as our guidelines can become those things that wrap themselves around us, and before you know it, it chokes the life and the joy and the peace and the hope out of our life. And we end up looking good, but on the inside we're defiled and we're dying. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.